0: You're
1: listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
0: Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9 8 Central on ABC and stream on Hulu. You care about your money? Of course you do. So, why aren't you listening to
2: SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. "'Twas the night before Christmas went all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse." Those famous two lines serve as the introduction to what is believed to be the most read, recited, reprinted, and collected work in all of English literature. But did you know that it was first written on Christmas Eve 200 years ago this year? That's December 24th of 1822, and was first published one year later by the Troy Sentinel in where else, Troy, New York, with its real title of, "Account of a Visit from St. Nicholas. Most credit Clement Clark Moore as having authored the poem, although others attribute it to Henry Livingston Jr. So just who did write the poem? And how, in the days before Telegraphy and Railroads, did a poem get from Moore's Chelsea home in Manhattan all the way up the Hudson River to Troy, New York? Well, to help answer these questions and discuss a whole heck of a lot more about this historic work is author Pamela McCall, who has spent the last 10 years researching Twas the Night's history, as well as hunting down artwork, poetry, derivative works, and really just about anything related to the poem. And while that may sound like a bit of a bore, Pamela's new book, Twas the Night, the art and history of the classic poem, is anything but boring. It's fascinating, and it's getting rave reviews all around. Not only is it an engaging read, it is also a visually stunning book to simply browse through. So sit back and enjoy my interview with Twas the Night expert Pamela
0: McCall. Useless information.
2: So, Pamela, thanks for joining me here today on the podcast. Love it to be here. I have to say, this is an, ama- an amazing book, it really was incredible. And uh, the first thing I I have to say is that it's kind of a two-fold book. I mean, the pictures, the images are incredible. You could really just put this down on a coffee table and just spend an hour looking at all the images, and it's just that incredible. But at the same time, it's rich in history and rich in—it's clearly been a well-researched book. So if you really want to sit down and read something, it's it's just an amazing—so I I just want to congratulate you on such an incredible book.
1: Thank you so much. That's lovely.
2: I should also add that it got five stars on Indie Reader, which is uh, quite rare.
1: And then it got a really good Kirkus review, which means the world to me. And uh, in the review, it mentioned that They appreciated the organization of it, which took a long time, as you can tell.
2: Yeah, and uh, I have to mention that you spent 10 years working on this book. Is that correct?
1: I did, because some of it involved traveling. I had Mm -hmm. to go to New York. I had to go to Oklahoma and look at archives and collections, Mm -hmm. and uh, so that took a lot of time.
2: Yeah, I assume you didn't do a consistent. You know, it wasn't like an every day. You you know, you did when things popped up, or did you work on it every day for ten years?
1: No, not every day for ten years, but certainly the last two years of my life were consumed by it.
2: Mm-hmm. Now, um, how did you get interested in this?
1: Well, I knew it was turning two hundred. The poem, it the Night before Christmas on um, Christmas Eve of eighteen twenty-two to twenty twenty-two, and I just thought it would be a great project because I knew there was a lot of art associated with it, a mm-hmm. lot of illustration and, of course, literary history of it. And I just thought it'd be a fun thing to do. And and, uh, I'm really, I've loved it.
2: Yeah, I have to be honest, I never read the poem in its entirety before. I knew the beginning, I knew the ending, but I had never read the whole thing. I really enjoyed it. I can see why people love it. And uh, I should also add that you had a previous book that came out on this, so why don't you talk about that?
1: Sure, in 2012, I took out the smoking and the pipe out of the poem Mm -hmm. for the first time. I don't think anyone had ever done it before. And it caused a media sensation. Stephen Colbert and everybody else got involved in that conversation. And the American Library Association took offense with it. But it wasn't censorship. It was an edit. Right. And I stand by it. Which um,
2: kind of surprised me when when I read that. Because this is a poem that's been edited over and over and over again throughout time. Even the original publication in the Troy Sentinel, which would have happened a year after it was written in 1823... They had edits to it. Is that correct?
1: Correct. And uh, the happy Christmas at the end turns to Merry Christmas in 1828. So, you know, I don't know why they took it upon themselves to take me out for making (laughs) an edit. But, and they certainly didn't criticize Paul McCartney for taking the turkey out of the Christmas song, which, because he's a vegetarian, Mm -hmm. I mean, they just chose me. So, (laughs) yeah,
2: I'm just going to guess here that probably sold more copies of the book. Sometimes getting publicity actually increases sales.
1: It was enormous. And the book is now 10 years old. And it's still in the top 25 books sold on Amazon.com under the category of American Poetry. Wow. Not bad, eh? Yeah,
2: that's that's really good. (laughs) I'm I'm quite envious. Uh, I'd love for one of my books to be like that. (laughs) just want to read the following from your book. It says the following is a 264-page footnote to the classic Christmas poem, Twas the Night. Considered to be the most read, most often recited poem in the Library of English Literature, with the poems Jolly St. Nick, the most influential fictional character of all time. Now, a couple of things about this is, one, you say this is a footnote. This is an incredibly (laughs) well-researched book. So it really is an amazing read. And what I liked about it is you don't have to read it from cover to cover. You can just pick a portion of it and read that. If you want to know the history of St. Nicholas or you want to ch- turn to the chapter on the poem itself and so on, you can just do that and not read the whole rest of the book. But you don't have to read any of it. That's the amazing part. It's just so spectacular to look at. But the other thing is is that it's the most read, most often recited poem. That's pretty amazing.
1: I know. And uh, it's also the most collected and the most published Wow. most republished and there's about 2,000 editions of it in book form and then you have to add in all the newspapers and all the magazines and the tea towels mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything else that's printed on yeah. so which, it which, goes on for you know
2: which is why I only know the beginning part was the night before Christmas you know because it is everywhere uh, you really can't get away from it you know um, but as I said it is a really beautiful poem now this isn't the first poem on Christmas obviously so what makes this one so unique
1: well, it's considered the ma- a masterpiece of juvenile fiction because it's so well-written. Uh, it's easy to remember. It's jolly. It's merry. But it's also kind. Like, mm-hmm. there's no birch and rod. There's no naughty or nice. There's no threat of punishment. There's actually a specific language says that there's nothing to dread, mm-hmm. right? And I think children really enjoy that because the poems that came before this, which talk about St. Nicholas, especially the children's friend in 1821, you know, he comes with a sleigh with a reindeer and bringing books, not not other toys, but he also brings the threat of being beaten up. Yeah. <laughs> so,
2: I, I was actually surprised to read that because I don't really know the history of it. You know, that basically he was judging children and showing up, as you said, with a and rod to, uh, to beat kids that, uh, that were bad. Yes. And, and, uh, and that
1: aspect of it comes back into the story, um, not through the poem, but through the works of people like Thomas Nast, who started to talk about Naughty or Nice or Mark Twain, who writes a letter to his daughter and mentions the naughty or nice. And I was just at the Mark Twain Museum in Hartford, and on the hearth, there's two footprints, and they've been there since the Twains lived there. And it's to remind his children to be good all year. Mm -hmm. That's his concept, right? But the poem was written by Clemency Moore in 1822. His father was the bishop of the Diocese of New York, and he was Christian. And it's a Christian concept to Mm non-judgmental. And I think that includes children. So yeah. he had he had eight children at the time he wrote. He had six, and so I think this aspect um, of the kindness and the inclusiveness of this poem is not only endearing, but it's made it survive two hundred years. You know, I can't imagine, you know, the tradition of reading it from the White House, which started in nineteen fifty three with Bess Truman, um, carrying on. If it if it carried this concept of you know punishment. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I was actually surprised that he wrote this, and then just shortly after that, his wife died.
1: Yes, and two of his children.
2: So. Oh, I didn't realize the children had died also.
1: Yeah, two children died, but in that day and age, right? Medicine mm-hmm. and and the woman had nine children. Wow! And she was young in her thirties, so you know she went through a lot. But uh, they had a great marriage; they certainly did. And and I know more enjoyed his children, he'd never remarried, and he took them on holiday to Saratoga Springs and wrote a poem about it, (laughs) you know, so he was a loving grandfather and and father for the rest of his life.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So the beginning of this book kind of goes into the history of how this came about, and you do a discussion about St. Nicholas and a holiday called uh, Saturnalia, so why don't you explain that?
1: Sure. Well, St. Nicholas uh, was a saint during the uh, Roman Empire time, 3rd and 4th century, and he did this wonderful act one night of throwing gold coins through a window anonymously to help a young woman, which actually two sisters who were being at risk of being placed into slavery or prostitution because the father didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And so this is a legend of St. Nicholas that really this poem is based on, and it comes from the you know third fourth century. So you know that's pretty incredible. So in working on this book, I had to follow. You know, culture all the way through from the Roman Empire, you know, into America. So <laughs> You mm-hmm. can imagine the amount of work it took to do that, and to bring this poem and the and the legend of Saint Nicholas along together, and the development of Christmas. And you asked about Saturnalia. I mean, Saturnalia, the Romans um, celebrated winter festival in a very um, large way. I mean, they decorated their homes with greenery. They had pageants, and they everybody um, they reversed roles too. They had role reversal where you know no one was a slave for the day they they actually managed the city and, <laughs> and it was really interesting lots of drinking um <laughs> yeah, got to get that in <laughs> lots of feasting but what happened um, in new york in 1822 was that there was a lot of salernalia behavior going on there were a lot of guns a lot of violence a lot of murder um it was a really dangerous time and so this poem came along in a period where you had people like john and picard and other people who wanted to bring it into the into the home the christmas celebration they also wanted to be inclusive of different um, religious faiths. And so this poem really facilitated that and, and brought Christmas into the home of the American family.
2: Yeah, uh, one of the things, uh, I mean, there's a lot of great things in this book, but uh, I think the one thing that really uh, jumped out at me is that in New England prior to the late 1700s, there really wasn't much in the way of Christmas celebration.
1: No, not at all. And actually a lot of uh, Puritans uh, banned any kind of observance of Christmas. Mm -hmm. And those who did participate, you know, and did it behind closed doors.
2: (laughs) I mean, I couldn't help but think, and I try and stay out of politics, and I will leave my opinion out of this, but, you know, this whole idea that we need to go back to how Christmas was celebrated back then, and I'm reading this and finding out, no, it wasn't even celebrated. So uh, it it just kind of left me with that question in my head, you know, what are we going back to? But, you know, I, I just was really shocked to find out that they really weren't celebrating Christmas, and it wasn't until uh, until you know this poem came along, uh, also Washington Irving, and uh, you know basically the period, say from about eighteen twenty, I'd say to 1840, 1850, that really set in stone all the traditions we have of Christmas Day. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Well, Washington Irving wrote *Knickerbocker* in eighteen oh nine, and he mentions Saint Nicholas twenty five times, including mm. having him flying over the houses of Manhattan in a wagon. So that you know, a lot of people do credit Washington Irving with a lot of this. And he introduced Knickerbocker at the St. Nicholas dinner. So <laughs> Washington Irving was certainly um, conscious of St. Nicholas and, and was interested in having him uh, have a prominent place in the city of New York.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I guess we should quickly mention, for those who don't know, uh, his most famous works, uh, Washington Irving's most famous works, would be *Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which most people are familiar with.
1: They are, but they also um, need to remember that he wrote a lot about Christmas, which just mm-hmm. wonderful and also highly influential because Washington Irving um, was very much revered by Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. And when you read Christmas Carol and you read the old Christmas by Washington Irving, you see it. You, mm-hmm. you, you see it immediately that the influence was there. But if, when you go even further and you go to Sir Walter Scott, who Washington Irving visits at Abbotsford, you see the connection between Washington Irving's writing of Christmas and Sir Walter Scott. And so it's really fun. And this is why it took me so long to write this book, (laughs) was I went from Dickens to Washington Irving to Walter Scott and put that all together. Um, And I also read a lot about the men themselves and their lives. And that really added a lot to the research for me because I could put these people in context as their relationships and friendships. And I found that, I guess, the most rewarding part of the research
2: as i'm reading this book all i can think is there are all these rabbit holes you could have gone down you know as you read about this person you could just go off and start researching this person and that person and this story and that story and the fact that you're able to pull it all together without ending up down one of those rabbit holes is pretty amazing
1: i went down a lot of rabbit holes i really (laughs) did i really did (laughs) i know a lot more than in my book
2: yeah, I, I find that when I do my research that, uh, you know, sometimes I'll start out with one thing and it leads me off in a totally different direction. At the end of the day, I'm like, holy cow, I didn't even do any of that, you know? Yeah.
1: Well, um, like uh, Lady Holland, who lives in Kensington, is uh, Clement C. Moore's first cousin. Mm-hmm. I spent a great deal of time with her because she she held literary soirees and she introduced uh, Charles Dickens to Samuel Rogers. And, and just you just go down these paths and then you read all about her life and and it was wonderful she was she was really something so
2: yeah the one thing i was i mean there's a lot of things but one thing that stood out to me is how interrelated all these people were everybody was related to somehow a second cousin this person this person but they were almost all affluent in some way you know so, you know, the affluent married the affluent and yeah, everybody's related to everybody. <laughs>
1: yes, they are. And uh, one of the things that was really interesting was I was invited to speak at the Mayflower Society and I went there, but I was trying to find the connections between clemency more than we're family and the Mayflower. Um, and I did, I found it. It took me about a weekend doing some genealogy work and I was able to do that. But one of the really interesting pieces of this was that the Puritans were avid readers and mm-hmm. they very strongly believed that women should read as well. And so I don't think a lot of people understand or know that the first two published authors from America were women. Wow. I find that really interesting. Um, and so when you come to this poem, uh, you find a lot of literature. In the Knickerbockers as well, you find women, and, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's great.
2: Yeah. That, I find that surprising, actually. I mean, you, you just kind of, when you're taught history, you just think men, 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 you know. Yeah. And uh, to know that, uh, that women were so heavily involved in the literary world is, is it's actually quite nice to hear.
1: From the Puritans. Mm-hmm. You know, so of all of their maybe their piety and their, their overreach um, that is the legacy that comes through and you have these great writers like Harriet Beecher Stone and everybody else coming up through this and Louisa May Alcott all these women right? mm-hmm. very very famous American women and I also see it in art there was a not from the Puritans but there's a huge art tradition in women too in this country mm-hmm. early.
2: I, I think for some reason you know history is Tends to focus on the men. I hope that's changing, but you know, I, I just remember going through school and hearing about this guy and this guy and this guy, but you never hear about the contributions women had. You know,
1: that's true. And I think that when I was researching this, I found, you know, some of the greatest writing about Christmas was, you know, written by women. I mean, Susan Fenimore Cooper, *Verl mm-hmm. Hours*, eighteen fifty, 1850, eighteen fifty-one. You know, wonderful stuff. It gives us a very valuable sort of inlook into the background of people in that era but it also shows an early naturalist you know, mm-hmm. along the veins of Walden. So you're know, an important person for sure.
2: Yeah. Um, e- even going through your book, not just uh, what was written, but some of the artwork by some of the women, it's just really incredible. Even the cover.
1: That's right. The interesting thing about illustration in America was that it was um, the father of American illustration is, is considered to be FOC Darley who did the first edition of this poem in 1862 Uh, his first edition of this poem in 1862. It's the edition that Teddy Roosevelt read when he was four years of age, which Mm -hmm. I find really fun. But through the Golden Age, which starts in the 1880s, you have this, you know, a large body of work done by women because Howard Pye, who was at the Drexel Institute, stipified that half of his class had to be women. Wow. And so you get the great Jesse Wilcox Smith out of that. You get Gertrude Kay. You know, you get these wonderful illustrators. But illustration was an accepted career path for a woman. Mm-hmm. They'd come up through the fashion uh, illustrations and magazines that they'd hand-tinted, and they were sort of primed. And then uh, because of Howard Ply and other people, they were able to you know, be educated, and then they became very successful. And I think that's wonderful, and they were very accepted. So you also had, I was mentioning uh, yesterday that I'd been up at Richfield, And I'd come across Ellen Klopswell's work, who was a major Christmas postcard artist. And there you go. And, you know, I read something that said that it was unusual for a woman. It wasn't (laughs) unusual for a woman to be in the arts at that point. So
2: before we get into the debate about who wrote the poem, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Clement Clark more, who he was and uh, how he got his money and, uh, and, and just a general overview of him. Why don't you start with that?
1: Well, Clemency Moore was born in Manhattan into a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. His mother's family, the Clarks, had owned a great deal of property. They actually owned all of Chelsea, New York, mm-hmm. and they, his Moore side of the family, had come um, up with money through the Newton Apple plantations or fields they had. They okay. they were the ones that introduced Newton apples, and. He was a very educated man. He went to Columbia, graduated. He was a valedictorian. He wrote a speech called Gratitude, which we can't find. And I was really trying to find that because I would love to read that speech. And the archivist at Columbia University could not find it either. Mm. But we're still looking for that. I think that would be a really great thing to read. Mm -hmm. So he was a generous man. He gave all the land for the building of the General Theological Seminary in New York, where it still is there. And if you are in New York, it's wonderful to go into the chapel. It's beautiful. And the Highland Hotel is on a corner of this piece of property. And he had a great love, his wife, Catherine Elizabeth Taylor Moore. And they had nine children, and they lived there. He never remarried. And he wrote other poetry. He put out a book of poetry in 1844, including this poem. And he lived to be an, an older grandfather and dies in Newport in 1863. And he has a funeral there, but there's no obituary in the newspapers in New York because it's the week of the draft riots, the most deadly riots in American history. And it's noticed a few weeks later, and someone says, we've lost a great person in our society, and let's not forget. Mm -hmm. So an interesting time. He was born at the end of the American Revolution, and he dies at the end of the American Civil War. So you can imagine his lifespan, how interesting it was.
2: Yeah. I was just commenting to my wife the other night that you know, if you happen to die on a day when nothing's going on, you'll you'll be front <laughs> page news, you know. But on the other hand, if you die when there's a war or something going on, no one will even notice that you passed on, you know.
1: Exactly, that's what happened with war. But some somebody did actually pick up on it and say, "Oh, oh we've missed this."
2: Yeah, so. that came up the other night because uh, Irene Cara, she had you know two really really big hits in the in the '80s, you know, "Flashdance" and uh, uh, "Fame," and uh, she passed on. And you know, she was a moderate star, I would say. But you know, because there was nothing else going on in the news, she was big news that night, you know on the other hand, there's something huge was going on in the world at that point. I think uh, it would have kind of gotten buried or she, she would have gotten a thirty second mention you know
1: something right so the the home Chelsea house or mm-hmm. home in New York it was thrown into the river in 1850 it was torn down. yeah, I read that, which is really unfortunate so there is no there is no museum for clemency Moore mm-hmm. there um There's no statue of Clement Seymour, and there's a, I always say it's sort of funny that there's a statue of Mother Goose in the middle of Central Park, but there isn't (laughs) one for Clement Seymour, the poet of Christmas Eve, who, who wrote, as we've said, you know, the most famous poem in the Library of English Literature. So, you know, I think that that's kind of unfortunate.
2: why don't you quickly tell the story of how he supposedly wrote the poem? I mean, I know there's people are questioning it and whatever else, but what's the general accepted story of what happened?
1: The story of how it was written comes from some writings from some of his family and from fictional accounts that it was a Christmas Eve, it was snowing. We know it was snowing. Because we can look up weather reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is factually correct, <laughs> that there was snow. And he gets in his sleigh and he goes out to pick up a turkey to put in a charity basket because they are missing one. Mm -hmm. Comes home and he runs up to his study and he writes this poem on a desk. And then he comes down to the living room and presents it to his family, his children and his mother, Charity and his wife who are there. And that is the myth that he was just struck by the light, the (laughs) snow and the stars and the jingle bells on this wintry sleigh ride and comes dashing in and does this. Uh, you know, and it's it's charming. It's, it's lovely. Um, and we do not know if that's correct. I mean, one of the things that Moore does is he writes the poem out four times in his lifetime mm-hmm. and later on in life and signs them on request of different museums and places. And on one of them, he writes, you know, I wrote, this was written a long time ago. I don't remember when. Mm-hmm. And if he only had have stuck with the Written a long time ago, period, you know, and, and not put in, I don't remember when. <laughs> the conspiracy theorists might not have so much to go on. Yeah.
2: Because- you know, the story is very charming. Um, but the first thing that popped out in my head is this is a fairly wealthy man. I just can't imagine him going out to get the turkey on Christmas Eve. You know, you, you think you'd have a, a servant or a helper or someone who would go out and do that for you, you know? It, it sounds great, but, uh, you know, I think there's there's a little bit of truth and a little bit of fiction in there at the same time, you know, to kind of make it sound really good.
1: The other interesting aspect is that I've read his will. I called the will, will up, and he had three desks. We know two of them; one's in the Newport Historical Museum, and the other one's in the New York Historical Society. Though so they both claim claim it was written on the desk, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think he wrote it on three desks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, and we don't know where the third desk is, so uh, it's kind of interesting. And you know, when you look at more, you know, the people who take claim to Moore, it's, it's fun because you have Newport. They, mm-hmm. You know, he dies there; he had a home there called the Cedars. It's still there. Uh, you, you have his desk, so it's a legitimate tie to this. Um, certainly, the New York Historical Society because of Manhattan, um, and then you have uh, Troy. Of course, has a huge piece. You know, with Clement C. Moore. Okay.
2: It kind of reminds me of Washington Slept Here, you know, uh, with having different desks, and uh, which one did he write it at? It could have been he wrote it at none of them, you know, uh, because it wouldn't be like, I wrote it at this desk, and he carved his name into it, you know.
1: But the interesting thing about the New York Historical Society desk Mm -hmm. is when you go there, you see a plaque, and it says that Moore donated this or bequeathed it to Harriet Butler. Now, Harriet Butler comes into the story about how it went from the Moore household... To Troy. Mm -hmm. The theory is that she read it in the home in the family album sitting in the front hall or heard it being recited and then traveled back to Troy and gave it to Orville Holly. We think that more likely she gave it to Sarah Sackett uh, of Troy who gave it to Orville Holly. And
2: we should mention Orville Holly was he was he was the editor of the Troy Sentinel, is that correct? Yes,
1: he's the editor of Troy Sentinel and I think he deserves a great deal of credit because he decided and recognized how great it was and put it on page four. So it is likely that the poetry section had already gone to press, but he found a spot for it and, mm-hmm. and he wrote a glowing preface and the preface followed the poem around. So when it was picked up by other newspapers and almanacs closely after the preface by Orville Hawley follows with it, mm-hmm. which is wonderful. When you look at this poem and all the, Publications it's been in one of the most intriguing aspects or the eras is the, the Civil War because it was printed on both sides of the conflict, but the editorials change and they politicized it. Mm-hmm. You know they talk about those darn Yankees and you know it's really interesting to read. You know how yeah. they use the poem to sort of for their own you know position. And, and
2: you did talk about that in the book.
1: <laughs> yes, I do because I found uh, the the Civil War chapter was one of my favorites to work on. Mm-hmm. It was a hard chapter to work on, but. Also, really interesting.
2: Yeah, I find uh, I, I try to limit my research from about 1890 forward. I find reading newspapers too far back very difficult. A, uh, there's not a lot of information out there, and B, you, you're not quite sure how accurate things are. You know, there's a lot of things written just to sell papers. You know,
1: that's right. But you also, when you go back and collect the old newspapers and magazines, you come across amazing art. So mm-hmm. That was one of the things I really enjoy doing as well is finding these images that are in my book that, you know, no one's seen for a very long time, or very mm-hmm. few people have, and and getting them out there in the public again, you know, it gives you the experience of what these papers really were like to read and uh, and to look at.
2: And this was the only way people got information. There was no TV, no radio, uh, you know, this was it, you
0: know.
1: That's right, until trains came along too, it was by stagecoach, so... They didn't even have a lot of publications because it was really heavy to move all these things around. So, you know, when you have the development of rail, you know, and publications become, Mm -hmm. you know, printable and everything else, it it really takes off.
2: Yeah. I wrote a story for my uh, latest book. It's about this guy. He decided to push a wheelbarrow across America. Uh, Oddly, he started not too far from here in Albany, New York. Uh, It was just on a bet. You know, someone bet him, they, they, they bet him a certain amount of money if he pushed his wheelbarrow all the way to San Francisco, and he did it but as i'm reading through all the old newspapers news traveled so slowly that you know people it was hard to know where he was at any one time because sometimes it would be printed in the paper weeks after he had left the place you know right. so i had to kind of you know work through it and figure out what the timeline was there was no way he like you know went out west and then headed back east so you know so you're right news traveled very very slowly um, and today, of course, it's instantaneous, you know, pops up on your phone in two seconds if something goes wrong.
1: And the other thing that's really interesting is the case of the uh, Jonathan O'Dell, which I read about in my book, and the forgeries of signatures. I mean, George Washington, you know, I found this letter in the Library of Congress that George Washington wrote giving Jonathan O'Dell free passage for life, and he was a spy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, because, you know, and, and, and James Fenimore Cooper, of course, writes this book, The Spy, based on this whole concept of disguise and and phony papers because mm-hmm. they couldn't authenticate anything. <laughs> you know? It's like, it wasn't that hard to be a spy and with phony papers because no one could check it out. <laughs>
2: right, yeah, definitely. So let's get a little bit into the controversy about who wrote this. Uh, most people say uh, Clement Clark Moore wrote it. Then there are others that claim that Henry Livingston Jr. was the one who wrote it. So why don't you just go into that a little bit?
1: Well, in the preface of my own book, I say that, you know, one is wise to, you know, refer to Benjamin Franklin and the idea of modest diffidence that, you know, one does not become emphatic about an opinion (laughs) if one doesn't have all of the facts in front of them. And so I think that with the case of who wrote this poem, that's my position, that we have evidence of more saying he wrote it. We have him defending that he wrote it in a newspaper when somebody accredits somebody else to the piece. He writes the letter to the editor and says, no, it was mine. Mm Uh, We have him signing documents saying it was his. We have him including it in his book of poetry in 1844. So there's some evidence. There's also the Tory Sentinel from 1823. And so that corresponds with with the legend and the story of 1822 in Mm -hmm. having been written. We also have the 1824 version written by his godfather's daughter, uh, which is the earliest handwritten edition we have of the poem, Mary O'Dell. And so we have all of that, but on the... The side of the Livingston family who say that it was Henry Livingston, we have very little, if nothing. Um, It's conjecture, Mm -hmm. you know, and so I think until we have hard evidence, which would be an earlier newspaper. And I know that the city of Troy hopes that is never found (laughs) (laughs) because it would blow their, you know, their great big link to this. I think it is Troy's. I think it is Orville Holly, And I think it is the Troy Sentinel with everything being digitalized now. And we've all, there's been a lot of people, a lot of race like myself looking for this for 10 or 20 years. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think that it's probably going to be, you know, more is forever um, based on what we have, but it's been shocking that there haven't been more journals or memoirs or letters found that mm-hmm. people, as you said, everybody knew everybody. And it's fascinating that somebody didn't write about this poem sure. and say, hey, I just heard this great poem or thanks for sending it over to me. Or, oh, look what, you know, Uncle Clement just, you know, there's nothing. And right. Washington Irving doesn't talk about it. Dickens doesn't talk about it. It's really interesting.
2: So the poem was written 200 years ago this year. And the following year, it was published in the Troy Sentinel, which we believe is the first time. And then it spread like wildfire. Within months, it was in many, many other papers. So clearly, that was the catalyst for it, which kind of suggests, you know, or at least gives the hint that that was the first time it was published.
1: Well, I think you're, you're right. Because if it had been published in 1808 by and written by Henry Livingston, would it not have set fire as well? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs>
2: Right. Although, although there are songs, I mean, it's all I can think of only example I can think of is that there are songs that are written that don't catch on the first time. And then some reason years later, you know, all of a sudden they just, you know, someone else sings it or whatever. And it explodes at that point. But that's, I don't know if that's really a good analogy, but.
1: No, it is. It's possible. I mean, they Mm -hmm. just, they just found a couple of years ago, a poem written by Sir Walter Scott that no one had ever seen before. Mm -hmm. So things do come to light and I think the more digitalization that we have, the more chance there is we'll find something. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it was really tempting when I was working on my book to go down the literary sleuthing paths and the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to be very careful because you could be consumed by it. It's very, very interesting. And you'd love to be the person that found it.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I just had to stay. Focused and I really enjoyed Clemency Moore so much, mm-hmm. and no one's ever written a full-length biography on the man. And I just thought I'm going to stay here because I I, I believe uh, he's an interesting enough character to write about, and let's give him the credit until mm-hmm. we
2: know otherwise.
1: It. We know otherwise. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, I mean, the two things that uh, you know, you mentioned other little things throughout the book, but the two things that really stand out as to why Livingston may have been the author was one that supposedly after he died, they found a manuscript of the poem in his desk, but then it burned up in a fire. And uh, we spoke before we started recording And What was your comment on that?
1: Well, I think they find a newspaper in his desk, and it it had been published. Uh, he dies, you know, after the poem was published. I think he mm-hmm. dies in 1828. So it could very well have been a newspaper of a reprint of mm-hmm. the, the Tory Sentinels. And there just isn't any hard evidence.
2: And what about the fire, though? You had mentioned to me... uh...
1: Well, the fire, yes. The fire in Wisconsin. The fire destroys the so-called manuscript, but somehow a bookcase full of his other manuscripts and his musical manuscripts are saved, Mm -hmm. so that kind of makes you wonder what that's all about. But it's it's a fun story, and I really really, um, subscribe to magical thinking, Mm -hmm. and I don't have any problem with fanciful thoughts. Right. I mean, I mean, why not? It's fun. And I mean, even the idea of Clemency Moore and a sleigh ride and jingle bells and it's fun. It's right. R- it's exactly. romantic. It's lovely. And Henry Livingston was a lovely man. He mm-hmm. was fun, you know, and he had lots of children too, a couple of marriages, lots and lots of children, enjoyed Christmas, loved sleighing. And his history is really interesting. The whole Livingston family is really interesting. So, you know, I'm okay with like all of these people coming to this poem and being part of its story mm-hmm. because- they're all, you know, I, I thoroughly enjoyable people to meet. <laughs>
2: right. You know, uh, after finishing, uh, uh, you know, reading the book, it was fascinating to read. But I'm thinking, well, if they found out Someday Livingston wrote it, that's fine. If they found out, you know, confirmed Moore wrote it, that's fine also. Either one would be fine because the, the poem is just fantastic, you know.
1: I agree. And it's been really fun to find People who uh, love reciting it, I just love Prince Charles, soon to be King Charles, reading it with Maggie Smith and Camilla and, and Dame Judy Dench. I mean, that's you can find that online. It's, it's I don't think you've ever seen Prince Charles that happy. And I sort of chuckle to myself and think, what would George Washington have thought of the King of England reading the most famous poem in the English language, which was written in New York? <laughs> it's kind of fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh,
2: that was something that really stood out to me. Now, you're Canadian, is that correct? Yes, I am. This book is very Americanized. The story is a totally American story. You know, not knowing the story myself very well, I was really surprised by that.
1: It's an American story. Yes, it was written in New York. And the world loved it. And the world continues to love it. I've done interviews. I just did an interview yesterday morning in Scotland who heard about this Mm -hmm. story. So, you know, and when I did my 2012 Smoke-Free Santa Claus, it was picked up in China (laughs) and India, the story. Like, it, it... if people cared. <laughs> so.
2: I mean, but, but I'm not even just talking about this poem. It's everything that I think about when I think about Christmas. You know, Santa Claus landing on the roof with his reindeer, what they're named, going down the chimney, uh, hanging up the stockings, uh, you know, Christmas trees, Christmas cards. All that is American. Um, and I just kind of, I guess, without really, you know, because obviously I'm, I'm not Christian. I'm Jewish, although... I call myself a pseudo-Jew, because I haven't been in the temple since I'm 15, and I don't really celebrate anything, but I just kind of assumed it was kind of this worldwide thing that all these things came from different places around the world, and then to find out between, say, 1820 and maybe 1840, 1850, that's when it all came together through various uh, things that were done here in the US, uh, and then the rest of the world is uh, celebrating it that way.
1: Right, well, I like to say that this, this poem was centuries in the making. Mm-hmm. So although it was written in New York, the threads can be drawn back to the Roman, century, Roman Empire. And so you come through you know, Western culture and you come into Great Britain and you have the 12-night celebrations mm-hmm. and everything else, and you have the Reformation back in the 15th century, before that even. And there are links to this poem through all of mm-hmm. those cultural um, references. So it, although it's an American poem, it has ties back to mm-hmm. the 3rd century. It really does. Like the Balls of gold that Saint Nicholas throws mm-hmm. to the windows; those are the oranges that we put in our stockings, and the coins. That's where it comes from. And can- candy canes are like the staff of Saint Nicholas. Mm-hmm. So there's ties that come through it. And these people who came to America in the early days, they brought with them their cultural backgrounds. Like the people off the Mayflower had come from the court of James the First and you know Elizabeth the First and James the First, and they celebrated Twelfth Night and they had Shakespeare. So these people came with that legacy the people who came out the Mayflower had, as, ch- as children had known Christmas 12 night. So they had those memories. and mm-hmm. They had that. And so they could bring it through with them. And so it comes back into the culture okay. in America. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. But the fact that it was written in New York and it, the fact that it was written for Christmas Eve, this is the really big piece because mm-hmm. the English Christmas dinner is really the big deal. And, and I say Washington Irving and, and Charles Dickens really promoted Christmas dinner, Clementine Moore gave us Christmas Eve with all the trimmings. Sure. Right? That's And he gave us Santa Claus with and, reindeer.
2: And, and that's a good way of uh, summarizing it. I really like that. Yeah. So uh, why don't we move on a little bit to the illustrations that are in the book? So why don't you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, the poem was illustrated by Myron King in the Troy Sentinel for the first time with one image of a Santa Claus in a sleigh on a roof. And then in 1841, it was illustrated for the Mirror newspaper with the first image of Santa Claus coming down a chimney mm-hmm. by Ingram, which is really fun. And that image is on display at the Albany Institute of Art and History right okay. now in their lobby. They pulled it out for this season, so you can go and see it.
2: Uh, I've only been there once. I probably sh- I haven't been there in years. I probably should go check it. It's out. It's in
1: the lobby. It's really mm-hmm. it's really wonderful to see. And that image was also used in 1842 in a newspaper in Albany as the first commercial, because the ad is actually for the Pierce department store to sell toys. And then it's illustrated, as I mentioned by FOC Darley in in 1862. And this is the one that Teddy Roosevelt reads a child. And then it blossoms and it starts to be illustrated by many other people as art techniques and publication um, publishing uh, becomes advanced Mm -hmm. with color. And so you would then have Thomas Nass coming off the civil war in Harper's, in 1863, you have him developing Santa Claus in a very big way. He loves Santa Claus, and he brings him to the North Pole, and he develops a world for St. Nicholas and, Saint, and Santa Claus. And he's very, very popular. Nast is a huge American artist at this point, very, very recognized. And then you get into these wonderful uh, illustrated editions of the book with the luxury Christmas books that come mm-hmm. out. With the, you've probably seen them with the gold on the front and sure. gilded in it. And that attracts a lot of people to it. As I mentioned, the great, great Jesse Wilcox Smith in 1912. You've got W.W. W. Denslow, who's very famous for Wizard of Oz. He illustrates it, and it's a wonderful edition if you can get a copy of it. And then it just blossoms into commercial work as well. So you've got Decker, Joseph Lyendecker, one of my favorites, who was also uh, very revered by Norman Rockwell. And then you have Norman Rockwell who doesn't come to the poem to illustrate it, but he uses the poem to illustrate for the covers of Saturday Evening Post. Mm-hmm. And you see many, many images by Norman Rockwell being inspired by this poem. And N.C. Wyeth, uh, the also great, the great, great N.C. Wyeth, um, again, in his commercial work. Um, you even have Andrew Wyeth later on in life does a painting with stockings by the bed. Right. <laughs> you know. So,
2: yeah, uh, the artwork in this book is just incredible. And I'm sure there was a lot more that you didn't include, am I correct?
1: <laughs> there was, you know, and and one of the ones, like Ellen Klopsetel, who I mentioned earlier, I had to take out the hallmark and, and her. I just didn't have room, and I thought I was going down one of these paths that maybe was not quite on focus, and I uh, kind of regret that because her story is so amazing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and her contribution to Santa Claus being a jolly happy soul. But the illustrations, you know, and in the 19th and 20th century, you know, we have so many editions, and it's hard to choose the best. You've hmm. got Holly Hobby, who I think has illustrated it twice, um, both lovely. And it's really fun to get different editions and see how an artist will come to the come to the work and interpret it. And Thomas Nast really was the first to take him out of the elf elf and sort of image into a human form, mm-hmm. and to lengthen his pipe and to make some radical changes actually to the to the language of the poem and. And it brings up this whole conversation about poetic license, you know, for an illustrator. How close do you stay to the text, and how far can you go, you know, without kind of what are you doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know,
2: you know, and you know, people have preconceived notions as to what it should look like. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want to, you know, go too far off in a different direction, do too radicals. I think people it, it would upset their image of of all the things, you know, what Santa looks like, what the reindeers look like, the sleigh and so on, you know. I
1: think also one has to remember when they're illustrating this poem is it's for children. It really mm-hmm. is. And I think that some of them are kind of dark. Some of the, some of the ones I've seen and I kind of question that interpretation of the poem because I don't think it's dark in any possible way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but people like Disney came to it in a big way, you know, definitely Mickey Mouse and Winnie the Pooh and all these people. You know, there's a piglet towards the night before Christmas. There's a Mickey, there's a Winnie, you know, and they're all there and. And it it spurred a lot of other books, like The Grinch. Um, you know, it it if without Twas the Night Before Christmas, you know, would there be a Grinch? You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, and it just it's sort of the heart of the whole thing, and and it's it's been a great legacy.
2: Mm-hmm. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think
3: everything went wrong.
1: His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over.
3: Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do
2: the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics
0: like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life, too. So this podcast is my attempt
2: to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. So there are a lot of people out there that collect both the works and the arts. Want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Well, I have a small collection, but there are people in America who have thousands of it, a thousand editions. And Nancy Marshall was the big collector. She's passed away now, but her her collection is at the William and Mary University at the Swin Library. And I was really grateful to them for helping me so much um, on this book. Lots of the images in the book came from their their digital collection. And I also think that collecting is a great pastime of many people out there. I've met lots of people along the road. I was in Saratoga Springs the other day, and I was just walking down the street waiting for a bookstore to open to do some book signings, and a gentleman was setting up a Christmas uh, little house where children come to have their picture taken. And I introduced myself. He said, "Oh, look what I have! He had a box of vintage Twas." (laughs) So I had this serendipitous moment (laughs) with this Santa with his collection. It was really fun. And then I was in Richfield visiting a collector there who had a box of amazing editions of the poem, which I was just intrigued with. So it's really popular to Mm -hmm. do. Um, But I would recommend that anybody who's sort of interested in this topic to go to the magazines and the early newspapers, because that's where you find the really interesting things that are hard, that are just rare, Right. you know, and I think um, it's, uh, it's just great to have great pastime.
2: When something's that popular, though, sometimes collecting can get very expensive, you know.
1: It can, except for the magazines. I can get like an edition of a, you know, a, a look magazine or mm-hmm. life, you know, for 15 $20, and you can get some wonderful things in there. There's an edition that has a copy of Clement Moore's daughter's illustration of the poem, which is considered the first illustrated, actually, in 1855. And that you can get for $20. Wow. That's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. You can't get the original. The original's in a vault with the Moore family. (laughs) And I've never even seen it. I have not yet met a Moore. I've met a Livingston. (laughs) I haven't met a Moore. I'd love to meet one.
2: (laughs) Maybe after they listen to this, someone will respond. Or or one of your... uh, one of the various uh things you do for promotion of the book
1: i think i'll find one i do yeah i do and they have a lot of the uh portraits of of clemency moore and his wife and charity and and i'd love to see them so maybe one day i'll meet him more that would be really great
2: yeah uh, considering he had nine children although he said two didn't survive um that means a lot of grandchildren great grandchildren uh, the family oh, really oh, and expands Oh, when
1: there are clement clark moore alive named after him wow one of them has a Rembrandt collection. He loaned to a museum in New York recently. Wow. Because I saw an advertisement for the Clement Clark Moore Rembrandt collection. I went, I didn't know he owned Rembrandt, <laughs> <laughs> But he, Clement Clemency Moore did not, that I know of. Right. But his descendant does. Wow.
2: <laughs> so who illustrated your first book on uh, Twas the Night?
1: Uh, Russians.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and uh, how did you choose them?
1: I'd seen their portfolios and Mm -hmm. I just thought they could do a good job with snow (laughs) (laughs) and color. And I wanted that Disney esque part aspect of it because I think that it's meant to be for children. I wanted it to be child sort of friendly. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a dog and a cat and I wanted it to be bright and cheerful. Right. You know, it is a cheerful poem, very. And so that's why I chose them. They're just very talented.
0: Yeah.
2: I mean, I haven't seen the book itself, I've seen a few. I have seen the cover and uh in the book you actually have a couple of illustrations from it and it is really really incredible. Uh, I I'm, I'm always jealous uh, of people who can do that kind of stuff. Uh one of my former students um I won't mention a name here but her mother uh for years illustrated the scholastic uh books, you know, for kids and just uh incredible work. Just it, it is a real true skill you know it's it's not something everybody can do
1: the other thing that people don't appreciate i think with book production is the book designer because i have a spanish book designer Mm -hmm. and you need to have somebody who not only can illustrate but you need this other designer who can pull it together graphically and i have a great book designer
2: Mm -hmm. that's good you know sometimes getting the wrong one can just ruin an entire project you know
1: yes and they give you good advice on the cover and everything else. And my cover of my book is, I'm i am really proud of it. It took me a long time to figure it out because I, I struggled with the NCY at the image because it's a hot piece of art. A lot of his work was stolen, mm-hmm. um, which is really unfortunate. And I didn't know if I wanted to put that on the cover just because it has a notorious sort of aspect to it. Right. Although he's one of my very favorite artists. And so I picked Helen Chamberlain, who uh, is very, very unknown. And I just thought the image was wonderful and very vintage and very endearing. And on the back, I put Louis Prang because Louis Prang democratized art in America. He was the one that enabled the printing of reproductions so people could put them in their homes. And so people could who couldn't afford original works of art could afford the Prang reproductions. Mm-hmm. And it changed interior design, and it, it really brought in art into the home of Americans. And, I, and so I, I really wanted to applaud him for that.
2: Yeah, um, I, it's just amazing to look at. It also makes me realize how far printing has come technology wise I mean these are just spectacular the reproduction is just incredible
1: yes when you think of like FOC Darley I mean they were hand tinting mm-hmm. hand doing like hand coloring
2: wow. wow right just just amazing
1: it is amazing and it's not that long ago it just isn't it's 200 years It's just not that long ago which is you know, really uh, probably the most amazing part of this. Just not that long ago. And look how much we've changed. And yet the poem still is loved by everybody. I was reading it yesterday. to some preschoolers. They were two two to four, two, two years to four years of age. And I wondered if it would capture their attention. Mm-hmm. And they had just been given a set of jingle bells by the curator of the museum. And they were busy with their jingle bells. So I thought, uh-oh, we've got a distraction here. They all listened. To them. Wow. And I went, okay, this is great. And- the last thing i think that's really important to say is that the most enthusiastic uh, fan of my book has been a 70-year-old gentleman who <laughs> read it as a child and wants to read it to his grandchildren and if that if this book reaches that audience then we can be secure that the poem will have a future because those children will read it and have it read to them by someone you know they love mm-hmm. and so the nostalgia and the memory of it with christmas will survive right so to me, every time my grandfather buys it, I'm so happy. <laughs> it's so good for the poem.
2: Uh, I mean, just a few days after I got it, I showed it to... Uh, I was visiting a friend of mine. She was a former art teacher at our school, and she just was like, wow. You know, she was g- going to get a copy of it for her husband. Um, but just the other day, I uh, we, you know, it was Thanksgiving here, and uh, my sister-in-law is over and she goes, oh, I read that to my my daughter every year. You know, I had no clue. And then I'm getting physical therapy yesterday and she's like, oh yeah, I had a copy of the book and I read it to my children every year. So it's just everywhere. You know, it's just so appreciated by people.
1: It is. And I was in Plymouth speaking at the Mayflower Society and on Thanksgiving, I, I have to say this, I had this opinion that Americans ate their dinner, put their dishes in the dishwasher and put up their Christmas lights. <laughs> Because the next day, when I started traveling on this 21-day tour I'm doing, people had wreaths up and lights up and balloons up <laughs> and, and, like, inflatable reindeer and, and, and not just one wreath. Many, like, some of their houses, they had wreaths in every window. And I went, oh, this is so great that people here embrace Christmas in such a big way. And we're still in November. Like, <laughs> it's such an important poem and such an important holiday. But some people live in Christmas two months of the year.
2: Two months you drive around and there are people who leave (laughs) it leave up their ornaments and you know their decorations all year.
1: Because it's positive. It's happy. It's inclusive. It's Mm -hmm. not and it's it's joy and it's children and it's memories and it's good. And it's it's just it's such a delight to work on something that's so positive. Mm -hmm. And I've been working for twenty one days. I've been on the road, I've been in twenty one hotel rooms. Wow. And uh yeah, it's been quite something in my rental car. And I keep sending back pictures to Instagram and to Facebook and everything else to my friends and family, and everybody keeps saying to me, you look like you're having the time of your life. You're having so much fun. It must be just great. And I go, it is. It's wonderful. But I'm also working really hard here. (laughs) You know, It's because it's Christmas and and twas, they just think, you know, she's just on some joy (laughs) ride. And it is. But it's, it's also, um, it's been wonderful in every aspect, but it, it's really funny. <laughs>
2: now, uh, I'm assuming you're in town for the Victorian stroll in Troy, is that correct?
1: I am here for tonight, for the Hart Oh, yeah,
2: which is uh, the, the museum that Kathy Sheehan, who yes. was on a few months ago, uh, yes. uh, she's the historian for it.
1: I'm there at their opening night, and I'm signing books at the Market Blog Books.
2: Too. Sure, which is right down the street. Right. Um, and I've said this before on the podcast, Troy is a beautiful city, at least, at least the portion around the museum that whole kind of downtown section. The, the architecture is just incredible.
1: I really like Troy. I've been here three times. I really love it. I think it's a great little town and it has uh, some really wonderful things the church full of Tiffany stained glass mm-hmm. is worth seeing and, and the museums are great and I've always loved being here.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful city. Anyway, I guess we should kind of bring this to a close. I just yeah. want to thank you for being on the podcast. The book again is called Twas the Night, The Art and History of the Classic Christmas Poem. So Pamela, I just again wanna thank you for being on the podcast. And uh, after you sign off, and, uh, you know what I'll do is I'll tack on some old audio of uh, a reciting of the poem. But in the meantime, happy, happy Christmas, Christmas to, all, to all, and all and to all, all a, a good night. night. Well, Pamela had to run off to an interview with ABC TV. So I only had a few minutes to talk to her after we finished the recording. So I'm just gonna throw in this little addendum. And that is, I forgot to mention that Twas the Night, the art and history of the classic Christmas poem, it's published by Grafton and Scratch Publishers, and they also publish her illustrated version of the poem that came out a decade ago. That work was simply titled Twas the Night Before Christmas, and her name is not on the cover. It simply says, edited by Santa Claus for the benefit of children of the 21st century. Of course, either one will make a great Christmas gift, so be sure to check them out. I will place images and links for the book on my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and I'll also post the transcript of this interview there. And speaking of holiday gifts, my publishers asked me to let all my listeners know that my most recent book, that's The Flip Side of History, uh, that is on sale at 30% off right now until January 31st of 2023. And of course, the book is a collection of unusual, long-forgotten stories, you know, just like the ones you always hear on this podcast. And if you'd like to order a copy, just go to their website, mango.biz, to order a copy. Uh, That's mango.bz, you know, short for business. Now, I'll also place a direct link to my book on the website. Anyway, as promised, I'll append a reading of Twas the Night to the end of this episode. And this audio is from a 78 RPM record that I found on the Internet Archive, you know, archive.org, And though there's no recording date available, uh, I can tell you that the radio host reading it is Cedric Adams, and he passed away in 1961, so clearly it was recorded before that, and he is accompanied by organist Freddie Bradish. Anyway, take care everyone, thanks for listening, and enjoy the reading of the poem.
3: I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers, they came. And he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen. On Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall. Now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky, so up to the housetop the coursers they flew with a sleigh full of toys, and Saint Nicholas too. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a round little belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl of jelly. He was chubby and plump a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. Happy Christmas to all and to all a good night.